morning. I was excited when Dennis mentioned that you guys were going through the Psalms. The Psalms are really a special part of the scriptures. My wife and I did a, a summer internship for a number of folks from the Middle East and Africa and some youth from North America one summer oh, about four or five years ago um, in the Middle East. And one of the things we did was we walked through the Psalms with them. Psalms are special because it's really uh, the heart cry of God's people, but we also hear the heart of God very clearly uh, in the Psalms as well. Um, the particular Psalm I wanted to go through this morning is Psalm 22. That has a very special place in my own life. I did not grow up in a Christian family. I grew up in a Jewish family. I had no interest in the gospel. Uh, rejected every attempt that was ever made to share anything with me about Christ. Uh, but in reading the Old Testament, I came across passages, and Psalm 22 was one of those, and it began to tweak my interest to find out who the psalmist was talking about. And so I, I branched out and, and very courageously decided to read the book of Matthew, and then the book of Hebrews, which I'll also mention this morning, and it was during reading the book of Hebrews that I prayed to receive Christ. Uh, so the psalm that I'm going through this morning is a... Uh, it's considered a messianic psalm, and as I mentioned, it had a big role in my life in drawing me to Christ, pointing me to him. This psalm is written in the pattern of uh, what are called Nauru inscriptions. In the ancient Near East, uh, kings would have their stories written up, and they would often be on large monuments inscribed in stone or on the cornerstone of an important building. And those uh, inscriptions uh, had very, very common pattern. They had six elements in them. Uh, the six elements were, first of all, that God favored the king. Secondly, the people favored the king. Thirdly, the king had faced some sort of great challenge. Fourthly, the king, through his own valor, might, power, or wisdom, had overcome that challenge. And fifthly, uh, that the outcome of this all brought some great blessing to his people. And then lastly, these inscriptions were also um, stories for the people to learn something about life in them. And so the book, uh, Psalm 22 follows exactly that same pattern. We have all those different elements in there. The thing about Psalm 22 is, is that the king announced in there doesn't measure up to what is uh, typically expected of a king uh, in the ancient Near East. He's really the antithesis of every one of those things. And yet, in the end, in another twist of irony, there's a great blessing that's brought as a result. But why is Psalm 22 different? Well, Psalm 22 is different because it is written against the backdrop of the reality of the fallen nature of our world. Uh, these other inscriptions, the other Nauru inscriptions, are almost like the stories of superheroes. Uh, you know, we have a lot of movies out now about superheroes, and, and you know, they all face challenges, but usually they draw on something in themselves to overcome those. And that was what the general pattern was with these inscription about kings. Uh, but Psalm 22 seems to really take a very different uh, direction, and it's largely because it is, it is not... Uh, it's not written as a, a mythology to uh, celebrate a great king. It, it's written against the reality of the fall. Westminster uh, Catechism speaks about uh, the effects of the fall, uh, sums those up as, as being uh, death that came into the world. But death also, it explains 
includes uh, both the suffering and the misery that is inherent in life. Um, Tim Keller has a great book called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, and in it he describes uh, this aspect of the fall that basically shapes every element of every one of our lives. He says, no matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and family, and successful in our career or ministry, something will inevitably ruin it. And that's kind of the nature of all of our lives. Um, and every religion in the world has a prescription for that. Suffering in the world is one of the great challenges that religions face. I did actually my master's thesis at RTS on the issue of what's called theodicy, a big word for basically how do we deal with the fact that there's suffering and, and, and evil in the world if God is God. Um, and every religion has a prescription for this because it's the great challenge to our belief in God. Islam, for instance, offers fatalism and says you simply have to f accept suffering. Buddhism says that everything is an illusion, and that includes suffering. Hinduism offers karma as an attempt to provide balance for suffering. Even secularism tries to explain it and says basically we should try to control suffering, but ultimately it has no real meaning or purpose. Um, Psalm 22 is written against the backdrop of, of, of this kind of world where things just go wrong. Um, Ron was mentioning uh, Preston and Sarah. Uh, they're good friends of mine. I remember talking to them shortly after they were expelled from the country where they were living. Uh, things like that happen, and often we just don't know why. It doesn't seem to make sense. Uh, Jim and Karen Weaver, I think they're also supported by your church. I was with Jim, I think, maybe six or eight weeks ago in meetings in Ivory Coast, and Jim was just so eagerly looking forward to getting back to Senegal. Um, and his family, was his children, his college-age children were coming over, and Jim and Karen were going to celebrate their 25th anniversary uh, and go away for a week of, of much-needed rest and relaxation and just celebration with their kids. The morning after their children arrived, they were in the backyard of their, their home. Karen was hanging some laundry, and a wall collapsed and fell on their uh, youngest son, uh, Nicholas's uh, right leg. He had to be medevaced first to France and then back to the U.S., and he ended up losing his leg as a result of that accident. And I remember Nicholas, one of the things he asked his dad was, Dad, why would God allow that to happen? We're here in Senegal as missionaries. Why would something just that um, out of the blue happen, especially as we're getting ready to celebrate your mom and dad's anniversary and be together and have a time of rest? And there's, sometimes there's just no answers for those kinds of things. But well, we want to look at uh, three aspects of Psalm 22 this morning uh, and, and, and try to get some perspective on that that Psalm 22 actually brings to us. First thing we'll look at is who's the Redeemer King that's announced in Psalm 22. Secondly, we want to look at how does what the King experienced in Psalm 22 relate to our own experience. And thirdly, we want to see what does the story of Psalm 22 say to us about the blessing that our King is bringing to us. Well, who is the King in Psalm 22? Well, let's walk through the, through the scriptures. I'm not going to actually read 
all of Psalm 22 this morning, but I will walk through uh, it segment by segment and uh, compare that basically to what the readers would have been expecting when they first read it at the time it was written. Well, the first part is, Psalm, is in verses 1 through 5, and in that, instead of the king being favored by God or being depicted as being favored by God, he's depicted as being rejected by God. As a matter of fact, the psalm starts out with the verse 1, with my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not really what the people expected of a king who's going to bring a great blessing. We also expect that the king would be favored by man, but in verses 6 through 13, we read that he is actually rejected by the people. Verse 6 says he was scorned by mankind and despised by the people. The third thing would we expect is that he would overcome all these challenges that he faces, but in verses 14 through 18, it seems like our king is defeated in a description that is really reminiscent of what happens later on Calvary when Jesus is executed. And in verse 15 it says, you lay me in the dust of death. Now that's what was used to describe a king who had been defeated. Kings that were in battle with other kings, if their side was defeated, they would be brought before the throne of the victorious king. They'd be laid down in the ground before them, before the people to be humiliated and then they would be put to death. And this is, this is a description of that sort of humiliation and defeat. And then we expect the king to somehow have some sort of something in him that he reaches into to, to sort of pull himself up by his bootstraps and overcome this great challenge that he's facing. But in verses 19 through 21, we see this king crying out to someone else to rescue him. Verse 19 says, Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. So, as far as a uh, resume for a king, this, is, this just really didn't cut it. This would be kind of like the worst political advertisement of, of you know, all time if you were trying to run for office of a great king. Uh, but in verses 22 through 31, even on the heels of these apparent failures to meet the normal expectations, it begins to describe praise for this king and praise for victory that we really don't tend to anticipate. Uh, Psalm 22 verses 22 and 27, 28 and 30 well describe that. It says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And then 22, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families and nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to people yet unborn, that he has done it. And this blessing is even greater than normally. Usually, uh, the way uh, the inscriptions of the kings were written... Uh, the blessing that they brought was to their own people, to their own nation. It didn't extend to other nations. It was also to a specific people, specific place, during a specific time. But what we read here is that, that this king, even though he's failed all these other elements, he's bringing a blessing that goes to all nations and all people of all time. But we're not really told how that happens in this psalm. There are other passages in the Old Testament that explain to us that these apparent failures 
the suffering that this king goes through, where he is, uh, seems to be defeated, actually had great redemptive purpose. Another passage that had a big impact in my own life is in Isaiah 53, and it describes the redemptive purpose for what Christ suffered as has been described in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, verses 9 through 11. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief, and when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand, Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. And by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. There's also another great passage in the book of Isaiah where Isaiah sums up what Christ has done for us relative to the fall itself. Isaiah 25, 8, it says this, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away every tear from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. What a wonderful way to describe what Christ did, swallowing up death for us. You know, God is still in the the business of swallowing up death for us. Uh, When we first went to Senegal, West Africa, we worked there for about six years initially, And we thought things were going really well. We had seen three churches planted. We had a couple of men that we were working with to train them, um, uh, to see them ordained as pastors of these churches. Uh, But at the end of six years, all of a sudden, Satan began to really attack. And one of the men uh, that we were working with to see ordained, he fell into very grievous sin. Uh, We were attempting to work with him to see that corrected. And things just went from bad to worse. Everything we tried just seemed to go badly. And at the end of six years, it seemed like the entire six years of ministry was all wiped out. Uh, And we just didn't have any idea. I remember uh, sitting down and uh, talking with a family that was getting ready to come back to the U.S. uh, who had been with us. And he said, well, the good thing is you get to start over. I said, yeah, I guess that's a good thing. But God, you know, really worked through that in a special way so that six years later, we had planted 16 churches. We had ordained eight men. Uh, and I could not have, at the point when things were going wrong, have showed you in any way, shape, or form how that was going to turn out for good. Like now, I look at what happened to Jim and Karen's son, Nick. I don't really see yet what good can come out of that. I'm not sure what good can come out of, of uh, President Sarah having to leave the country that they were serving. But Christ is still swallowing up death. And we know that even in circumstances where we can't see that happening, that that is true. So how does our own experience relate to that of the king in Psalm 22? Well, one of the things we see is that Christ really experienced the exact same things that we do. Um, C.S. Lewis, in his book, uh, The Joyful Christian, is, is not writing about Christ here, but he's writing about our experience of the fallen world. But as you, as you listen to this, you can really hear echoes of all that Christ went through, not just at Calvary, but throughout his entire life uh, that he went through at, in, as coming to um, in the Incarnation. 
Lewis describes suffering this way. He says, it includes the threat of every temporal evil, pain and death, which is what we fear in injury and sickness, isolation from those we love, which is what we fear from exile, toil under arbitrary masters, injustice and humiliation, which is what we fear from slavery, hunger and exposure, which is what we fear from poverty. And so Christ really goes through the same things that we do. I mean, if you look at his life being born to a poor family, having to flee, uh, his family had to flee as a child, uh, and then just as he goes uh, you know, through his ministry, he encounters opposition after opposition, and eventually ends up uh, being betrayed by one of his followers, and then being put to death uh, by his enemies. Um, but not only did Christ go through the kind of things we did, he also felt the things that we do. You know, one of the hardest things in suffering is the feelings that it brings up. Uh, I don't know if you've gone through something very difficult, but the, the initial, almost always the initial feeling is, why has God abandoned me? And then the next thing we do, we start to go, okay, why is God not dealing with my problem, but I can look around me and I see other people where he's doing for them what I wish he would do for me. And that can drive a wedge between us and God. But Christ felt those exact same things. In Psalm 22, verse 1, where it mentioned, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ felt that sense of abandonment. Even though he was God, he was very much both God and man. And in his human nature, he felt the exact same things that we do. Uh, and that's quoted in, in Mark, Mark uh, 15 and Matthew uh, 27 when Christ was on the cross where he cries out to God, why have you forsaken me? The psalmist also talks about this despair or sense of uh, um, comparison with himself and with others. Scattered throughout Psalm 22, there's expressions of despair. Um, and... Um, in 22, uh, 1 and 2, it says, for instance, why are you so far away from me? I cry to you by day, but you do not answer. But that's contrasted to this, to verse 22, 4, which says, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. So Christ is feeling the same thing that we often do. You know, something's going wrong in our life. Uh, you have a diagnosis of cancer or something. You look at someone else. They've been cured. Your diagnosis is getting worse and worse and worse. The immediate reaction can be, why isn't God taking care of me the way he's taking care of them? And why has God abandoned me? The book of Hebrews very interestingly links us and our experience in the falling world with uh, Christ as he's depicted here in Psalm 22. I'd like to read from Hebrews 2, 10 through 12, and then Hebrews 4, 15 talking about Christ, and it links it directly to Psalm 22. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. And then it quotes Psalm 22, verse 22, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. 
And then in 4.15 it goes on to say, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. So one of the things we're seeing here in Psalm 22 is that Christ has this very deep uh, existential relationship with us in our suffering. And, you know, other religions, they try to justify um, suffering in some way. They try to say, okay, you just have to simply put up with it. I know in Judaism, for instance, the idea was that if you had enough wisdom from God's word, you could avoid suffering. Um, but the problem with trying to justify suffering is, um, is that it really doesn't help when you're going through it. I don't know if you've had friends and you sit down with them and try to talk with them. Some of the best thing you can do with somebody who's in deep suffering is just to sit there with them. Uh, I know I often try to say, well, you know, it's going to be all right. But I don't know if it's going to be all right. It may not be all right in this world, you know. Um, I was talking to Jim as they were being medevaced back to the States. And the prayer was that Nicholas wouldn't lose his leg. Uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't say that for sure. I didn't know what was going to happen. I can't say it's going to turn out right, all right. Or if he does lose his leg, God's going to use that in some special way to save somebody or do something. You just don't have that ability to say those kinds of things. Um, And C.S. Lewis talks about this problem. Um, He said basically um, the greatest problem with suffering is that it, it, it has this potential to drive a wedge between us and God at the very time that we need to draw close to him. Because we can feel that God has abandoned us in the things that we're going through. We can have this sort of bitter despair that God's helping others, he's not helping me. And that can actually uh, split us or cause us to draw away from God at the same time uh, that we need him most. And the one thing about this psalm is, is that it shows us that Christ is with us in suffering. It doesn't give us a nice, neat, tidy answer uh, for what the psalmist was, was talking about this person was going through. And I think that's intentional. We have to look at other parts of scripture to see why this king was suffering so much. Um, but it, 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 it brings us into a relationship with Christ at the very point in time in which we are at the greatest danger of being, being, uh, of losing our faith, of walking away from God because we don't feel He's there with us. Now, the other thing we know about Christ's suffering that's a little different from our own was that it was actually greater than our own suffering because all, a lot of times, you know, things that I go through, and probably yourself, some of what I go through that are problems are actually the result of my own sin. I've done something wrong, I've made a mistake, I've been foolish, and now I'm, I'm suffering some sort of consequence. But that was never the case with Christ. Nothing that he went through in his life was a result of any sin of his own. The other thing that happens with us is very often, I don't know if you're, like, if you're like me, I have something that starts to go wrong, maybe I wasn't the one that caused it, but my reaction to it can make it far worse. So I begin to react in sinful ways to try to fix what I should just let God deal with. And so we make our own, own problems worse very often. But Christ never did that. He never reacted in a sinful way to what was happening to him. And so his, 
His suffering, in some senses, is even greater and deeper than our own. It's also uh, his suffering was substitutionary, as we as we just read. Um, you know, we our suffering can be used by God, and often is uh, to our own benefit and to the benefit of others. Christ's suffering was used by God for the benefit of the entire world. See, uh, um, Tim Keller in his book again talks about this this aspect of what Jesus did and, and how it was redemptive. It says Jesus lost all his glory so that he could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so we could be free. He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That's being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into our lives will only make us greater. So what does uh, Psalm 22 say to us? about the blessing that our king brings? Well, first of all, it doesn't tell us that we're gonna avoid suffering. That's just not the reality. Um, I've seen it so many times. Uh, it doesn't matter you know, what your calling is in life. It seems like often the more engaged you are in trying to uh, see God's kingdom expand, the more suffering comes into your life, which you wouldn't think would be the case. I know Nick, one of the questions he, he had was, Dad, we were missionaries. We were trying to bring the gospel to the people in Senegal. Why would a wall collapse and I have to lose my leg? Um, so we aren't, we aren't spared from suffering, and we have to face it. You know, we can look to Christ in our suffering. Uh, we know that he was able to face it. But more than the fact of that, that, that he was an example for us, is the fact that he's actually with us. And he goes with us in our experiences and our feelings. You can go to Christ and tell him that you feel God has abandoned you. He's not put off by that. You can go to him and say, why is my instance of suffering not being dealt with like this other person's instance of suffering? He's not put off by that. He's there with us. Uh, but we do see Christ, you know, swallowing up death for us. Like I mentioned before, uh, we had this instance where ministry just kind of came apart after six years. And then we saw God really use even the negative things to just propel things forward over the next six years, far more than we could ever have imagined. Uh, about seven years ago, we, I started working with a group in another country called Gambia. And things were going really well there. We had seen about 32 churches planted, and we had four men ordained. And then there was a personal conflict with one man and the other three ordained men. And that just grew and grew and grew and grew until the point in which the denomination itself split. The three men that we felt we could continue to work with um, were actually connected to only seven of the 30 churches. So 23 of the churches went off with this fellow. And looking at that, it was, it was a hard situation. Uh, I, I still don't see necessarily why that would go well. But having gone through something similar many years ago, I now have a sense of faith that, yes, God is going to use that. Even though I can't see it right now, it, and I may not see it during my lifetime, I know that God is going to use those kind of things for good. And so that builds our faith. But then there's times when we just can't see why things uh, have gone the way they are. And we are in danger then of what Tim Keller says, 
uh, really is the problem with suffering is that suffering is unbearable if you aren't certain that God is with you and for you. Um, but we do have a profound redemptive effect in what Christ has gone through and how it's depicted here in Psalm 22. You familiar, I don't know if you're familiar with the New City Catechism, but it talks about how Christ is presented in the scriptures and the impact that that has on us. I know as I read this passage as an, an unbeliever, it, it just sparked in me an interest to know who Christ was. And the New City Catechism says this about how, how Christ is presented. It says, The glory and beauty of the blessed Jehovah, which is most worthy in itself to be the object of our admiration and love, is there exhibited in the most affecting manner that can be conceived of. All the virtues of the Lamb of God, his humility, patience, meekness, submission, obedience, love, and compassion are exhibited to our view in a manner the most tending to move our affections that can any, of any that can be imagined. So here in this psalm, Christ is intentionally presented in this, in this, in, uh, along this pattern of kings of the ancient Near East. But he's intentionally presented as a king who doesn't measure up, but who yet brings a great blessing. And that is meant to draw us to Christ himself. As a matter of fact, it says in Psalm 22, verse 27, it says, all the, end, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Well, what do they remember? Well, they remember this king who just didn't measure up, a king who suffered, who died, who apparently wasn't victorious. Um, and what it tells us that that does, it says that they turn to the Lord. And this turning to the Lord is really about our greater union with Christ. And that's really the answer for everything. That's Paul in the New Testament uses terminology either in Christ, in the Lord, or in him 164 times. And everything that he says we have as Christians, we have in Christ. And so Psalm 22 is presenting to us a king who's going through all these terrible things, he's not measuring up, life is going really bad, uh, and he's presented that way so that we are drawn to Christ at the very time of our lives that we need him, him the most. And this deepens our relationship with Christ, and it makes Christ become for us more and more our supreme love. You know, Augustine talked about sanctification. He said, basically, you could sum up sanctification in this very simple phrase, love God and do what you want. Now that that sounds kind of dangerous, love God and do what you want. But what he meant was love God supremely and then everything in your, else in your life becomes ordered under that love for God. And Keller talks about the issue of suffering and this supreme love that, that I think Psalm 22 is, is drawing us into this way. He says, while Christianity was able to agree with pagan writers that inordinate attachment to earthly goods can lead to unnecessary pain and grief, it also taught that the answer to this was not to love things less, but to love God more than anything else. Only when our greatest love is God, a love that we cannot lose even in death, can we face all things with peace. Grief was not to be eliminated, but it was to be seasoned and buoyed up with love and hope. We had a missionary who worked with MTW for a long time, named Renee Vick. I don't know if any of you have heard of her. Maybe not. Uh, she worked in Ivory Coast. 
for a little over 20 years among a small tribal group translating the scriptures for them. Um, she then moved to Senegal and became part of our team there, where she continued to actually work with teams with uh, Wycliffe, helping them uh, verify translations of the scriptures. And while she was with us, the New Testament that she had been working on for 20 years was finally published. And one of the things that Wycliffe typically does is they have a celebration. So you take the New Testaments that have been published, you go to the group that they've been published for, there's a celebration. Uh, they now have God's scripture in their language. And can you imagine having grown up, uh, well, it's hard to imagine, having grown up without the scriptures in English and all of a sudden this wonderful long-term effort has been made and the scriptures are available that you can read them in English now. Well, what happened with the group that, Vic, that Renee was working with was the group was so small, the language uh, actually started to die out during that time. And they had actually, there was a good number of Christians among them, but they had adopted reading the Bible in French. And so when she went to try to set up a celebration uh, for this uh, publication of the New Testament, really was nobody wanted to come. And I remember talking to her about that, and that was hard. 20 years of your life given to seeing the New Testament published. And now the group that you've worked for to say, well, thanks, but you know, we're reading the Bible in French and you know, there's just not much material in our language. And, uh, you know. Renee, um, actually, I don't know how long it was after that, she came down with cancer and went back to the U.S. Um, and she wrote this letter. I think I'd like to just read this for you, um, talking about her experience she said, Dear friends and family, I want everyone to know that I once took great pride in my work as a Bible translator. It was indeed a great privilege to spend so many years of my life working alongside Wycliffe colleagues and translation teams. However, now I merely see myself as a cancer patient among other cancer patients. But I belong to Jesus. And in the end, this is the only aspect of my life that really matters. I'm so grateful that he has forgiven me all my sin." and taking me in, and that one day he will take me home to live with him forever. I plead with all my brothers and sisters in Christ to stand firm in your faith, and for anyone reading this message who doesn't know Jesus, to give your life to him. It is the most important decision you'll ever make. The consequences are eternal. And Renee passed away, I think a few weeks after she wrote this letter. Um, but here she was, having given her life, you know, went through a lot of things, uh, and faced cancer at the end. She was unmarried, um, and yet she saw the importance of Christ. Christ for her was her supreme love. And Tim Keller wrote about suffering again in his book. He says this, he says, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys for seeing the coming sorrows, Christianity empowers us, its people, to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. You know, that's deep, deep gospel power. Um, we think of the gospel power as, I pray a prayer, my sins are forgiven, but it has much deeper implications in our lives. It allows us to face the very things that often crush people's faith, that often turn them from God. I'd like to close just in reading Hebrews again, Hebrews 4, 15 through 16, and then we will sing um, Jesus Shall Reign 
and then I'll give the benediction. Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need.